Hello and welcome to this week's Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. My guest today is Conservative MP for Reigate and the former chair of the Commons Foreign Affairs Committee, Crispin Blunt. Our conversation focuses on Palestine, Israel, and the pursuit of the rule of law. Crispin Blunt, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Now, earlier this year, in an essay you wrote for the Balfour Project, you announced the formation of a new organization, the ICJP, the International Center of Justice for the Palestinians. What is the intent and how is the project developing? Well, the idea came uh, from discussions between a human rights lawyer, uh, Tayyab Ali and I, who have been worked together for some time on uh, a range of different projects. And it struck me that the time had come to uh, put into practice an idea Tayyab had originally had about having a legal centre that would be a place at which we would advance legal claims uh, for to seek justice for Palestinians. That and the, the centre we have decided, uh, chosen to set up, uh, is then trying to identify every conceivable avenue at which we can reasonably go after uh, uh, avenues of justice uh, for Palestinians. Uh, from the International Criminal Court at one level, uh, down to the oversight board of Facebook at another, where Palestinians uh, find posts sympathetic to their cause being taken down unreasonably. And uh, we've got the centre away, we've had the initial uh, tranche of funding to enable us to employ five people, I think, now are on the, uh, uh, on the books. And uh, I'm delighted to say we continue to uh, receive uh, promises of more support than the idea is, and cases to pursue. And the idea appears to be being received extremely well. And of course, there's no reason why it shouldn't be. Because if you can identify routes to restitution and justice, that all of that helps use the moral and legal authority of the Palestinian position, whereas resorts to violence in desperation do act to undermine that legal and moral authority and have so far blocked routes to uh, to justice for Palestinians rather than enabled them. Can I ask you how it is that a longtime Conservative MP has come to be at odds with so many in your own party and indeed many in the opposition when it comes to Palestine? I, I just wonder, are you in a lonely place? Well, it can feel quite a lonely place at times. And obviously it did a couple of weeks ago when uh, the House of Commons voted on the prescription of Hamas in its entirety. And I find myself the only voice against the motion uh, in the House of Commons. Now, uh, terrorism is quite a difficult issue to find yourself on the wrong side of the government on. But what we've seen uh, in terms of the debate about Israel is, of course, it get pitched into this highly charged uh, area of claims about anti-Semitism. And uh, you have to step very carefully as a parliamentarian uh, in this area because you don't want to get a word wrong. Uh, otherwise, you will find yourself uh, on the wrong end of claims of anti-Semitism when all you're actually trying to do is stand up for uh, justice uh, for the Palestinians. Uh, so it's a, an area uh, many colleagues would rather avoid because it comes with significant risk. Yeah, you used the phrase uh, that this decision had a chilling effect and that Palestinians have the right to resist. 
And you do, you make the point that MPs are naturally risk averse and, and the Israeli lobby is very effective and very powerful. I can certainly speak to it from my time at the BBC. Um, but what sort of challenges then are you facing? I mean, when you sit down with the other side, so to speak, in parliament, because there are people very strongly pro-Israeli, how do you have a conversation with them? How do you bring them into a common ground debate or discussion? Well, I think objective has got to be uh, to invite people to see the board from the other side. Uh, what does it look like uh, from Gaza if you're an ordinary Palestinian uh, looking over the wall of Israel? Uh, what is the perspective of uh, people there? Why, why are they chosen to support Hamas? You know, the Palestinians were one of the most liberal Arab societies. Um, there were, how, how we got to a state where they're voting for a, a religious-based party that is now the uh, majority representative in the, the PLC, although they haven't had an election since 2006. Uh, why haven't we had an election since 2006? What route is there for Palestinians to uh, democratically express their views? And so uh, uh, I don't think one needs particularly to advocate. One needs to show and tell. And uh, I think getting... Uh, Israeli people who are sympathetic to Israel. I'm sympathetic to the state of Israel. It's one of the great achievements of the 20th century to, to find a safe place for uh, people who in Europe had faced centuries of oppression and had just been on the receiving end of the greatest crime in human history. Uh, now, of course, that has come as a price, uh, finding that home. And it was a price when the uh, British uh, recognized what we were trying to do in the Balfour Declaration, uh, where we were going to protect the interests of the people already uh, in the territories where uh, the Jewish home was to be founded. Only we haven't delivered that half of the Balfour Declaration. And that is the core of the injustice to uh, Palestinians. And we're now in a place where uh, so much injustice has happened. It is should not be difficult for people to be invited to see both sides of the question and to understand how Palestinians feel. And all you need to do are really is to recognize uh, the common humanity of people on both sides of the question. Uh, Israelis deserve to live in security, but that can only come with the Palestinians are able to live uh, the recognition of what they have lost and restitution that is made. Now, how it's a huge international challenge to how to take this forward. The only way I can frankly recognize as the best way of taking it forward is now a one state solution where you, traditions of, of uh, all the people who have some kind of claim on the uh, territory of Israel-Palestine are uh, then able to find themselves properly represented in it. And my own view is uh, that since the uh, William Hay described the two-state solution as a last chance saloon about a decade ago, uh, it's being built out of existence. Uh, and that really only leaves a one-state solution in which everybody must have the same rights. And so a route needs to be found, a project of a reconciliation for the 21st century. There is something uh, inevitably been seen as special about the Holy Land, so three uh, major religions. Well, let's get a position where there is a sense of moral purpose about uh, rehabilitation um, of a relationship where people can be proud of, of being able to live together can I ask you, I mean, have you been the target of uh, allegations that you are anti-Semitic because of statements that you've made? 
Well, I mean, occasionally, but uh, obviously, in assumption, if you're if you support just the Palestinians, you must be anti-Semitic. Well, since Palestinians are Semitic, it seems rather odd um, uh, accusation accusation to make. You know, I work for I think the, the, the second Jewish uh, foreign secretary, and uh, uh, quite possibly the first Jewish defense secretary. So it's obviously a lot of nonsense. How will the ICJP pursue its its legal mission? Uh, you mentioned it be would it be through the Israeli legal system? You mentioned international court. Uh, how is that going to work? And, and what sort of cases do you think you'll take on? Well, we've uh, obviously um, cases have been brought to us to uh, to take. Uh, exactly how uh, the ICJP develops will, I think, Ty Valley and I share hopes that it will become a legal firm in its own right at some point and be able to receive instructions uh, in that way rather than seek uh, legal firms to take on uh, cases for us. Uh, and I also want uh, it to o- begin to occupy a space where we start to coordinate all the different legal actions that are being taken on behalf of Palestinians in, uh, in different jurisdictions so we don't have people uh, doubling up and replicating uh, areas or where there are rather obvious uh, legal avenues for restitution that they're not being taken. And so that uh, through every avenue that's available to us, whether it's through the Israeli courts uh, or whether it's through international courts or whether it's through uh, global private sector institutions like Facebook that then set up their own uh, oversight boards to make sure that uh, people who use their services are being dealt with fairly, uh, that we uh, can use those as well. And we need to be, I think, innovative about uh, how we progress things. But of course, at the core of the, of the issue, uh, does remain uh, the most serious breach of international law, the false Geneva Convention, and, and much flows from that. So the settlements, they're illegal, yeah. they're continuing. Is that the sort of case that the ICJP will take on? And if so, how significant would a victory in that be? Well, a victory in any kind of advance in that uh, in that area is is very significant. But you've got... Yeah, the, the take the United Kingdom for example. There's a very strong campaign against the boycott and divestment uh, campaign in the UK. But you don't have to say to people who are who are saying you, you can't engage in that. Well, what are people supposed to do? You are not allowed to occupy someone else's territory, expel the people who live there, and then settle your own citizens on it. That is a gross breach of the Fourth Geneva Convention. And I'm an ex-soldier. I mean, I grew up. In a, in a profession where the laws of war were the most profound laws that we had to understand and abide by, and breaches of them were the most serious matter of all. And here is a, a breach of the False Geneva Convention, which is, uh, it, it's really grotesque that it has not, it's largely now being ignored by much of the international community, and the United Kingdom can find itself signing a uh, an agreement with Israel where we're advancing security and cyber connection, the cyber security connections. Well, all those things ought to come with a real consideration of how Israel is going to be invited to meet its international obligations. It is a signatory to these conventions. Do you see then that Britain has a particular responsibility to discharge? that one that it has effectively walked away from. Yes, and that's why uh, I don't think we should allow uh, British leaders to be able to walk away from 
the responsibilities that they have inherited from previous generations of uh, decision makers. Now, of course, the difficulty for any British um, foreign secretary is that uh, when you've invaded 170 members of the United Nations over the course of your history, there's quite a lot of places in which you've got quite a special interest. <laughs> um, and obviously the, the uh, imperial inheritance uh, does hang over the, uh, the United Kingdom, um, sometimes positively, as it does through the Commonwealth and the, that family of nations, uh, and sometimes negatively as nations who have been in an association with the United Kingdom that they regard perhaps rather less happily than we do, it's then become part of their story and narrative. Now, we've got to get to a place where we recognise that history has two sides. And just as much as uh, we might like our, our Indian friends, for example, to reflect on the, uh, the Indian railways and the civil service and the, uh, the quality of uncorrupted administration that they uh, inherited um, and its accountability through a democratically elected parliament, there are other elements of the history which people will, which Indians will regard differently, and we ought to understand why those uh, scars of history, uh, where they sit. These things ought to be, uh, should be easy enough to get to if you can understand each other's perspective. And in the end, much of uh, what the law is trying to do and justice is trying to do is to make sure that, that those perspectives are fairly reconciled. But that scar, those scars, imperial scars, if you will, and, and, and the positives as well, I mean, the scar surely in Palestine is a very deep one. Uh, it's not something I think that we should uh, lightly skate over, not least because the consequences of British policy having not been delivered, uh, despite the best intentions then to find a fair settlement, both to enable a Jewish safe place, as well as uh, not then prescribing and removing the rights of the people who already lived uh, in Palestine. I'm thinking too of Haaretz just uh, revealed a massacre in the village of Hula. The village was ultimately destroyed. Yeah. Uh, uh, dozens of, of young men and, and, and boys were, were massacred by Israeli forces. Is that the sort of uh, a case that will be pursued? Um, I don't know. To be uh, it rather depends what the... Uh, I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> um, so in that sense, I'm acting in a sort of wider... You know, my, my, my role in this is to try and make the wider case. There will be uh, proper advice to be obtained about whether there is actually the opportunity to seek uh, restitution in uh, particular jurisdictions but of course overriding all of this is a moral case as well as the individual legal ones that's in that framework that I think this should be uh, this should be sat and I was struck in that uh, from what I uh, saw of that article was referring back to the Israeli cabinet at the time at their reaction and the comments recorded there uh, about the uh, Deir Yassin massacre, and I, and I believe reference to some of these others that uh, Harris had, had reported, about the moral stain this was going to put over the state of Israel. And, and I was struck by uh, comments made to me by a South African uh, Israeli Jew uh, who was uh, hosting uh, a cricket team. I went to play for in a parliamentary cricket team on a, on, a, on a visit to Israel, where he felt that Israel began to lose its moral authority 
after the 67 war and that uh, once the occupation had begun, it, that was the uh, continuing undermining of Israeli legal and moral authority. And given what has happened uh, since 1967, he's got to be right because it's dragged Israelis into uh, the awful business of having to police the people under direct occupation. And that uh, the people under occupation have really conceded the, the legal position they held before 1967 in order to try and achieve a settlement. And it really ought to be. Uh, it's the Israelis who are now building what would be a huge compromise on behalf of the Palestinians to settle for about 20% of their territory pre-1948. And so I think one wants Israelis to, uh, and many and many do, uh, understand that there is a, at the heart of this, there's a searing injustice and a, and has a growing embarrassment about uh, Israeli policy and the consequences of it for others. And this does not reflect well, inevitably, on those people who would otherwise be very sympathetic to the state of Israel. Yeah, and I'm thinking because you, as you say, are ex-military and this uh, IDF is an army of occupation. Uh, we've seen the videos where the army has, has stood by while settlers attack uh, Palestinian farmers. I mean, this cannot be good for an army to be in occupation and, and for its soldiers to uh, sit by while these various acts of aggression are carried out by settlers who were there illegally in the first place. And then one, exactly, and then one sees you know, settlers who are even illegal by Israeli standards and Israeli laws where, where illegal settlements are then constructed and then suddenly they gradually uh, somehow uh, then become established settlements as the, uh, as the years go by. And then the different justice arrangements available for uh, for settlers as opposed to uh, Palestinians under under occupation, and all of it does then present a rather um, ugly story uh, to the outside world for anyone who's going to fairly look at the situation. Uh, and I think there, of course, there are very many Jews around the world who obviously looked at Israel as a very special place, as any Jewish state, as well as uh, Israeli Jews for whom uh, actually they want to put this right. And they don't want the state of Israel to be associated with in, injustice and the illegality of driving a coach and horses through the Fourth Geneva Convention. And uh, actually, that's the basis on which a reconciliation can be found. And then I would hope it could be a great uh, project of reconciliation between the Israeli and the Palestinian peoples of the 21st century. You know, these Palestinians, as you said, they've already given up so much. The Israelis pride themselves as being a democracy uh, founded on the rule of law, and yet the judicial system has behaved so unfairly towards the Palestinians. How will the ICJP work within those confines? Can anyone expect that the Palestinians will get a fair hearing within the Israeli judi judicial system? Well, the evidence uh, obviously is how uh, difficult it is to get a fair hearing and all those organizations who are uh, seeking to uh, pursue justice for uh, Palestinians have got to get together and try and uh, identify whether it's an Israeli jurisdiction that you uh, is the right one to follow one may have to uh, start there uh, it doesn't necessarily have to finish there the international courts, uh, there are some within Israel who say the attempts to bring Israel before the international courts is yet again an example of anti-Semitism. Is that going to be a path forward? 
Well, well it obviously isn't an example of anti-Semitism. It's an example of trying to hold people to account around the law. And, of course, the law can come, it comes in a very large variety of forms. And states are usually have constitutions which uh, will require them to uphold a certain uh, degree of human rights standards. Um, whilst the United Kingdom doesn't have a formally written constitution, we are party to the European Convention on Human Rights. Uh, American states are party to similar conventions. So in terms of the relationships that Israel then has with all of these states, there often is a route to justice of some sort uh, at an international level uh, in a whole variety of ways. And that's where, obviously, the, the whole way in which international law applies uh, in all of this and around interstate relations is is complex, uh, but that complexity can often then uh, provide uh, some form of uh, adjudication tribunal, which can, who can be approached. Mm. But we meanwhile have the illegal settlements uh, going on, the attacks on Palestinian farmers that I, that I mentioned, the Israeli state with the support of our government and the US continues to behave with impunity. It just recently declared the six Palestinian human rights organizations terrorist fronts. How can the rule of law ever prevail in such a in such a climate? Uh, I'm not claiming that the ICJP is something going to be able to deliver uh, the rule of law in these circumstances. Well, uh, it's again, it is a small contribution to uh, giving a sense for Palestinians that there is. Another player, even if small in the game, that is on their side of trying to access uh, justice for them, acknowledging that they have a degree of legal and moral authority around their cause. And the more they can believe in their legal and moral authority, the more uncomfortable uh, in every ordinary Israelis will be about the lack of legal and moral authority uh, that the state of Israel has in regards of the terrible injustice over, over a century that has been collectively and individually endured by Palestinians. And it's true uh, if the Palestinians, um, if that is, is sense that there is an active route uh, to seeking uh, restitution, that is not uh, through violence, even on the straightforward pragmatic uh, conclusion, that violence is self-defeating in the end because it then it hurts everybody uh, concerned, those initiating it and those responding to it, and obviously inevitably the the casualties uh, that uh, come from it in a, in a in a real sense, and it damages the the moral fabric of the of the people engaging engaging in it. And if you can provide at least some route away from it then I think one's making a contribution of some kind, and at least I believe that's in a, in a positive direction. And if at the same time it causes a certain degree of moral concern amongst Israelis that um, there may be a better way than the current way of doing our level best as a government to make sure that the Palestinians can't reconcile uh, can't produce a negotiating position and that Israel is going to be able to avoid the difficult compromises that are going to have to be made if there's to be a reconciliation with the Palestinian people uh, and therefore the like the uh, that moral discomfort uh, will then uh, can grow and then be turned to a positive uh, in a positive direction to help an Israeli government engage in that negotiation 
uh, that can lead to a settlement. Mm. Now, in, in your essay that I referred to at the beginning of our conversation, you wrote, I am done with false hope. And you have said you're done with the two-state... Uh, I'm done with false hope in Parliament, put it that way. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you may be quite right. I'm, I'm, I'm an eternal optimist, but I've, I've got, I have got fed up with advocating the cause in the British Parliament, and it's kind of gone nowhere. So being a voice in, in, in Parliament, I actually want... I'm now much more comfortable about doing something real and actually trying to pursue... Uh, avenues of justice in order to I think this will be a more effective use of my experience and time and so uh, that's why I've taken my efforts in this direction. Well I'm interested too is that you you abandoned the the two-state solution as well and this is something that the Jonathan Kutub uh, I spoke with uh, uh, a couple of months ago has, mm -hmm. has equally abandoned it but, but I'm wondering um, it's a very difficult and hard road I mean do you think that there can be a one-state solution that gives equality to all. Do you see that happening? Um, do I see that happening? Is um, is a different question to whether it could. Um, in, a, in, a, in that sense, it, theoretically, it could, and it depends. It would need uh, political movements on on both sides to be in a majority position on both sides in order to enable it to happen. Uh, it may be that the Palestinians if they get to a position where they say, well, we're not going to get our own state, we'll go for a, a one-state solution, of course, there then becomes a rather basic request of uh, their individual human rights uh, within that one state if it's to be a democracy. And that leads you to certain conclusions about uh, how that state might be organised. And if you got to that point, I think the... Uh, it, it, there may be the Israelis might be rather more interested in a rather more realistic two-state solution. And it, even if it's therefore a, a tactical approach that you are prepared to engage in full uh, reconciliation within a single state, uh, that, that sends a pretty powerful moral message about the future security of your neighbours. And on that basis, Israel, or the climate of opinion may be able to be created in Israel uh, that would support a more realistic route to a two-state solution. Interesting thought that uh, the uh, the possibility of one-state solution may be enough to jar the Israelis into actually uh, taking it seriously that a two-state solution is viable. That was actually the thinking that was uh, presented to me as long ago, about 20 years ago, when I went to visit the negotiation support unit that was funded by the Department for International Development at the time to assist the negotiating team of the uh, Palestinian Authority. And... Uh, the, the, the bright young things then uh, working into uh, uh, no doubt still be a bright very much brighter than me um, may not be quite so young <laughs> if not as old as me um, that it was it was it was then that I was struck by the force of that approach well if you're not going to give us a state uh, of our own then we'll, uh, you, it has to be one state and what are the implications of that I actually quite like the, the implications from a a moral point of view of uh, actually making uh, reconciliation and living together an actual project and then make it a project that, that, that commands global admiration um, for actually uh, taking this terrible conflict that so disfigured the last half of the uh, 20th century and uh, the first part of the 21st and actually let's make it an example to the world of uh, reconciliation. Yes, well, uh, a, a huge challenge, but one very well worth pursuing. Uh, thank you so much, Kristen.
Not at all. Thank you very much for talking to me. You've been listening to the Herb Digest podcast. My guest today was the Conservative MP Crispin Blunt. You can find his essay and many other excellent ones on the Balfour Project website in a PDF booklet titled Israel-Palestine in Search of the Rule of Law. You'll find that at balfourproject.org forward slash rule of law. In addition to our podcasts, which I'm pleased to say have a rapidly growing global audience, Arab Digest publishes a newsletter featuring some of the very best MENA analysts. If you'd like a free trial to the Arab Digest newsletter, simply go to arabdigest.org. And if you enjoy what you find and want to join the club after your trial period has ended, we're offering special rates to students, academics, and retirees. And subscriptions are now available to university libraries. Check it out on arabdigest.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest, essential reading from independent sources. (music) 